Forgetting the lessons of history is supposed to condemn you to repeated mistakes, and that little truism might well apply to the predicament facing the US and its allies right now, according to a respected American scholar who joined me from his home just before the invasion began this week. Professor Hal Brands, B-R-A-N-D-S, argues that America needs to look at the history of the Cold War for lessons on how to be successful in the future, that it's a vast repository of information, he writes, about long-term competition, that that victory was a marathon, not a sprint, highlighting the very muscle memory required now, he says, in suddenly relearning about the reappearance of dangerous foes of the past. Professor Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, the author, too, of a new book called The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. And I welcomed him. Thank you for having me. Um, during the Cold War, competition was a way of life, which certainly seems to be the case uh, uh, now we're entering that anyway. What are the key lessons we can learn from that time? And I might ask you a sort of sub-question, uh, is it particularly pertinent given, the, given these extraordinary moments we're living through? Well, I think it is pertinent. And uh, I, the one lesson I think I would highlight that is particularly salient today is that we shouldn't think that competition will be easy or that it will be free of cost, risk, and danger. I think what we're learning right now and uh, in, in the crisis involving Ukraine and Russia is that geopolitical competition is not some abstract thing that only happens uh, in the minds of strategists. It, it plays out in the real world with the danger of, of conflict and tension and even war. And so I think it's important that the United States and its allies work to contain the ambitions of autocratic regimes of China and Russia, because I think their ambitions would be fatal to the world order that the United States and its allies have worked to construct. But we shouldn't imagine that this will be easier, it will be painless. Uh, yes, look, it, your, your book and, and the article that I read on it distills it all so terribly well. If I can put it really colloquially, we're out of practice at this. The West is out of practice at this, isn't it? That, that's exactly right. Um, the reason that uh, great power rivalry sometimes feels unfamiliar to us or we talk about it as though it's something new is that we've essentially had a holiday from history over the past 30 years. And so after the end of the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world really did enjoy a generation or more uh, in which great power tensions were lower than they had been at any time in the modern era. And so a lot of the lessons that we learned about how to compete with dangerous rivals, we had the luxury of forgetting. But, but unfortunately, that era is now over. And so if we want to understand what's going to be necessary to succeed in this era, we're going to have to go back and refamiliarize ourselves with the history of the Cold War. Um, it is interesting, though, that as it's sort of dawning on everyone, uh, just how we may be in some sort of new world order, uh, people are writing about it. Jared Baker, for instance, who, who writes quite sharply, writing in the Wall Street Journal, put it really broadly the other day. Victory in the Cold War bred complacency, a loss of a defining sense of purpose. We, meaning the US, failed to meet the most basic needs of many 
citizens for economic security, opportunity and belonging, and in the process stoked resentment and political backlash. So in a way, he's placing this in a broader perspective, I think, than merely, um, you know, great interpower rivalry, but a, a, a real sort of commentary on the world that uh, has been allowed to be created. Well, there's no doubt that the Cold War, even though it saw fierce and often vicious political debates within the United States and other countries, did provide a certain sense of identity uh, to Americans and perhaps even a certain sense of of cohesion in the sense that it was it was at least obvious what the United States was trying to achieve in the world during the Cold War, the containment of Soviet power and the strengthening of the free world. After the Cold War ended, Again, we, we had the luxury of drifting uh, a little bit, and so it, w- it became much less apparent to your average citizen what exactly the United States was trying to achieve in the world and, and why that agenda was worthy of support. So the, the bad news is that we're now back in an era where we can see quite clearly what the threats to the security and prosperity of the United States and the democratic world are. Uh, I suppose the good news is that this is already producing a bit more of a consensus in the United States. And so if you look over the past two presidencies, there's been a strong degree of continuity in terms of thinking about China as the primary threat to American interests. And I think you increasingly see that reflected in the public at large. After the Cold War, uh, you, you say, when you look back, multiple presidents promoted democracy and free markets overseas, which often did very much benefit America as well, people will be saying, my listeners will be saying. But how important was that, do you say, to the stability uh, of the world order, specific, especially now that we're looking from our current perspective? Well, I don't think we should lose sight of a lot of the good consequences of American foreign policy after the end of the Cold War. If you go back to the early 1990s, it was quite common to predict that the world was about to enter uh, an era of really vicious instability, and you would get German revisionism and Japanese revisionism, and East Asia and and Central Europe would return to the battle days of multipolar competition. And and that didn't happen. Uh, In fact, We entered another generation of relative geopolitical stability and also a period in which global prosperity rose, the democracy spread, human rights became more widely respected, and and bad things like nuclear proliferation remained relatively limited. A lot of that had to do with the very active global role that the United States continued playing after the end of the Cold War. I don't want to make it sound like American policymakers got everything right. That certainly wasn't the case, and we can all identify our our list of biggest errors of omission or or commission uh, since the end of the Cold War. But I I think one of the reasons why there's so much at stake right now is that since the end of the Cold War and really going back to the end of World War II, the United States and its allies have done a really remarkable job of creating a world that in many ways is more benign than any humanity has ever known. You also cite a failure of integration that the US hoped that China and Russia would become responsible stakeholders, but in a US-led world, uh, they clearly had other ideas. That's right. I don't think either power really liked the idea of occupying the second tier of the global hierarchy in a world led by the United States. And that was arguably an oversight on the part of US officials. We convinced ourselves that the liberal international order that we were promoting was so beneficial that everyone would buy into it 
uh, even the Russians and the Chinese. I think it's that that oversight has become more and more apparent really over the course of about 15 or 20 years. And it's simply being thrown into sharper relief today. Uh, I mean, I just want to quote in passing, you know, I think that that great line, one of many from Churchill, in victory, magnanimity. Uh, and there is an, an argument being made that actually the uh, uh, the US didn't know how to temper its language, as Eve, uh, let alone its deeds, in that sense of sort of acknowledging that um, you're careful, you don't strut when you have won, and most definitely they did win um, at the end of the Cold War. That, that's a common critique, although I think it oversimplifies the problem. And so in, in certain ways, the United States was remarkably magnanimous after the end of the Cold War. It pulled Russia into the Group of Seven, a group that Russia really had no, no um, claim to being a part of. It, it tried to create a very close relationship between Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton. The United States was probably the foreign country that was most responsible for or most involved in China's astounding economic rise by shepherding it in to the international economic system. Now, we didn't do these things for all – exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and the United States didn't do these things for altruistic reasons, and we often coupled them with policies that Russia and China really didn't like. But I, I think it's misleading when some commentators argue that the United States basically pursued – you know, only in a grandizing, exploitive policy after the end of the Cold War, because that just wasn't the case. Um, my guest, I'll just let listeners know, my guest is Professor Hal Brands, who's written this very interesting new book, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today, a very pertinent uh, time to be uh, being released. Now, the you specifically mention the attacks of September the 11th, 2001, that the United States spent a decade focused on the Middle East rather than on rising geopolitical rivals or just ra- almost rather than the clearly the seething resentment that was building, which we're now fully grasping, I think. Um, how big a mistake has uh, that decade turned out to be? Well, it's it's difficult to say that a focus on terrorism in the Middle East in a broad sense, was a mistake, given the trauma of 9-11 and the, and the danger that those uh, attacks represented. I, I think it's entirely fair to argue that certain U.S. policies, such as the invasion of Iraq, were mistakes. But but it definitely did have a distracting effect. And so prior to 9-11, the George W. Bush administration was planning its own pivot to Asia, which got waylaid as a result uh, of the Iraq War. And by the time the United States began to draw down in the Middle East uh, around 2010, 2011, uh, it, it had, those wars had been so costly and so draining that it left Americans less well, less well placed to respond to the emerging challenges by China and Russia. So there, there certainly was a significant strategic cost there. Yes, you have this very interesting observation. Long-term competition, which is different to short-term competition, and you make quite a lot of that, is a test of systems as much as statecraft. It's a measure of which political, social and economic model can best generate and employ power. And you go on to really... uh, tease out what undermines a nation's vitality in this long sort of marathon, I suppose, of, um, of, of a test in order to wage power. Now, the, is, the, is the United States we see today capable of really wrestling with this level of uh, depth of what needs to happen? 
I think so. I think it'll be a challenge. Uh, but I think that just as the U.S. system proved to be stronger than the Soviet system over the course of the Cold War, I'm, I'm more impressed with the strengths of the American system than I am with the Chinese or the Russian system today. I think Russia's weaknesses are obvious. Uh, it has a sluggish economy, demographic problems, and a variety of other internal strains. I think China's problems are perhaps more concealed, or at least we've paid less attention to them. But China's facing serious demographic pressures, uh, an economic slowdown that's been going on for about 15 years, uh, a growing debt burden, growing political strains as a result of Xi Jinping's centralization of power, and other problems that I think will make it very hard for China to remain competitive over the very long term. I don't want to downplay the threat. I think that the United States and its allies have some very difficult days ahead of them. But I do think we need to avoid the fatalism of assuming that we'll simply be unable to handle the challenge. Chinese behaviour, you write, is driven by ideology and geopolitics, insecurity and aggrandizement, the same potent cocktail that's energised rising powers throughout history. It's a pretty devastating old line uh, phrase, that. I think there really is a mix of of motives that drive Xi Jinping. Uh, Part of it is a historical sense that China deserves to be at the top of the international hierarchy. Part of it is the insecurity of an autocratic regime that has been living in a world led by a democratic superpower. Part of it is just the age-old story of a country that becomes more ambitious as it becomes more powerful. And then part of it, of course, has to do with personality. And Xi Jinping has really put into overdrive a lot of the Chinese ambitions and assertiveness that we've seen uh, in recent it's years. It's restoration so of dignity the, the too, it, isn't it? Yes, and I think the the reason that the Chinese use the term rejuvenation rather than rise is that they they argue that they're simply returning China to its rightful place at the center of Asia and perhaps the world. Uh, and in fact, you know, China has seen itself, uh, to use a bit of an anachronistic term, as a superpower for a very long time. And it's really only in the past 150 years that it's fallen out of that status. And so when you put all these things together, it does create, a, as you mentioned, a very potent cocktail. Mm. Look, finally, um, you make the point that for two generations, it is worth remembering this, there were vast resources and intellectual energy uh, committed to competing with the Kremlin in the United States, militarily, economically, diplomatically, ideologically. And this was a huge effort. could that be done now? And could I suggest why not over climate change? This is one of the, this is a, talk about a clear and present danger for so many of us. Why could that not be uh, the, 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 the two generational commitment that everybody buys into? So I think there is a possibility for a long-term commitment on the part of the United States. And I think the fact that we've seen the last two presidential administrations, one Republican and one Democratic, uh, embrace the idea of competition with China indicates that we're, we're seeing a return of a competitive mindset that can last through changes in administration in the United States. With respect to the issue of, of climate change, I don't think it's an issue of either or. I think that the United States and its allies are going to have to do both. Uh, I think it would be a mistake, however, for the United States Uh, to say that um, we are so committed to dealing with the threat of climate change that we are willing to make concessions to China on geopolitical issues. That's what the Chinese would like us to do. It's what they've demanded. But I think it would be disastrous from the perspective of the security of the United States uh, and its allies, including countries like 
Australia. And so we're going to have to try to address um, uh, shared challenges within a competitive framework. And that's something that actually did happen during the Cold War, whether it came to issues like arms control or dealing with uh, the threat that smallpox posed in a lot of countries in the global south. So there are precedents here that we can draw upon. And why the twilight struggle? Why don't you use that term? So John John Kennedy described the Cold War as a long twilight struggle in a speech that he gave in 1961. And the idea was that uh, twilight, twi- just as twilight is neither dark nor light, neither day nor night, the Cold War was neither war nor peace. It wasn't the sort of great power war that had occurred during World War II, but it certainly wasn't what Americans had traditionally thought of as peace because it required all sorts of exertions and commitments and expenditures that were typically associated with periods uh, of war. And so that was why the Cold War was a twilight struggle. It was neither fish nor fowl. And I think that's a very appropriate term in thinking about the U.S. relationships with China and Russia today. So not, yes, back to competition rather than collaboration. Um, All right. Look, very interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hal Brands uh, from the Johns Hopkins School of International uh, Studies, also the author of The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today, published by Yale University Press.